Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I will continue to say that Christmas is uh, not just a single day in our calendar year. It's actually 12 days, right? The 12 days of Christmas. And so we find ourselves this morning in the middle or the start, the beginning of the Christmas season. And what's fun is we all have our Christmas traditions, right? All of those things that our families do, that when we gather together, the foods that we eat, the movies that we watch. This morning, I am robed in all of my Christmas attire that I could possibly find that matches. But uh, one of my favorite things to do during the Christmas season is to watch different Christmas movies. Uh, Paige and I, we've watched Jonathan Taylor Thomas's I'll Be Home for Christmas. We watched Elf multiple times. We watched cheesy Christian Hallmark-type Christmas movies as well that are just horrible. Um, but one of the classics, the 1990 classic Home Alone, where the McAllister family is preparing for their Christmas vacation in Paris. Uh, The extended family has gathered, the bags are packed, and they are ready to set on their dream vacation in less than 12 hours. But as the family lay asleep, many of you know the plot, the strong weather outside causes the power to go out in their household. And the result was all alarm clocks were reset. And that wouldn't be a big deal for us today, uh, but back in the Stone Ages, like the 90s, there were no cell phone alarms. No nightstand alarm clock meant no alarm clock, right? Uh, All the young people are like, what? How does that work? But as they woke the following morning, they they hurriedly got their bags loaded up into the airport shuttle. They clipped their bodies into uh, the seatbelts, rushed through airport security quickly. Remember, 1990, it didn't take an eternity. And they boarded the plane just with moments to spare. But mid-flight to Paris, the matriarch of the McAllister family, Kate, awakens with this anxious feeling that we'll recall here. What's the matter? Honey? I have a terrible feeling. About what? That we didn't do something. Ah, now you feel that way because we left in such a hurry. We took care of everything, believe me, we did. Did I turn off the coffee? No. I did. Did you lock up? Yeah. Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage, that's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? <laughs> if you look on YouTube, there's wonderful compilations of the Kevin scream that are available for your watching. But any parent who has lost a child knows this sickening, powerless feeling that Mrs. McAllister feels in that moment, right? There's guilt for your failed responsibility. There's panic for your vulnerable child. Uh, worst case scenario after worst case scenario after worst case scenario is playing through your mind. Uh, losing her child turned her dream vacation uh, very quickly into a nightmare. But unlike his mother, Kevin, portrayed by Macaulay Culkin, senses little to no panic once he wakes up in a household completely empty, all alone. 
Rather, he rejoices in his good fortune and begins to take full advantage of this wish-come-true scenario. And just as a quick aside, this has nothing to do with the sermon at all. I did not use Aftershave forever because that movie terrified me when he puts it on and he screams. I was like, I don't want that. Right? But in this morning's text that we'll be reading here in just a minute... Uh, we find what could have been, but most likely was not, the inspiration of the creation of Home Alone. We find Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, living out every parent's worst nightmare. Mary, the one who just in a previous chapter in Luke's gospel was venerated so highly, has lost the Son of God. She's distressed, panicking, and just freaking out like any normal parent would. Again, remember, first century, there's no phones here. There's no police here. There's no, you've literally just lost your child in the middle of the desert. And Jesus, like Macaulay Culkin, calmly goes about his days, taking full advantage of being home alone. Will you stand this morning in the honor of reading God's word? At the end of this passage, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you can say thanks be to God. It's from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40 through 52. There, there the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think, Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In our text this morning, we find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of Passover. Uh, At this period of time, only men were required to to travel to Jerusalem to attend the annual feast. The inclusion of Mary and Joseph here in Luke chapter 2 Jesus, at the age of 12 here, and not yet considered a man, highlights the depth of religious piety that the entire household maintained. And the trip to Jerusalem from Nazareth would have taken the family about three days of travel. That's 80 miles, 20 miles a day. Can you imagine taking your entire family on an 80-mile walk so that you can celebrate Christmas? That's what's going on here in Luke chapter 2. And during this time period, traveling wasn't so safe. 
as it is today. And so often what would happen is families who were making the long trek would journey together in a caravan or in a large group of people who had the same destination. In fact, one of uh, the things that I was reading is that uh, some scholars believe that men and women and children uh, traveled in separate packs together in the caravan. And so Jesus could have gotten lost because Mary thought he was with Joseph, and Joseph thought that he was with Mary because he was in this strange age where I'm an adult man, so I travel with him, but I'm not yet quite there. And so uh, regardless, though, is what's more significant isn't uh, how Jesus got lost or how they became separated, but the responses between, uh, there are different responses between Mary and Joseph about the separation. Mary is distressed. She's anxious. She's upset. You can imagine the emotional toil this had on a parent. Upon discovering Jesus, all of those emotions just lash out, not with a, oh my gosh, I'm glad we found you. How could we have done this to you? But with an adamant, how could you have done this to us? Your father and I have been frantically searching for you. Jesus calmly responds, no, I've been in my father's house all along. Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be here? Upon these words, the scene quickly transforms from this sort of resolved tension to a, to a scene out of the, one of those TV shows the kids say the darndest things, right? Is Mary's emotional state must have quickly turned to just puzzled confusion as she began to wonder and ponder the words that her son just spoke to her. What do you mean you were in your father's house? Your father lives in Nazareth. I imagine most kids say, strange things at young ages, some of them very silly, but every once in a while, at least working with students, I recognize that they'll say something incredibly profound. This is one of those moments for Mary and Joseph. What does he mean by his father's house? Although she doesn't understand it, we discover at the end of the passage that she kept thinking and pondering about this statement for years and years to come. This scene of confused travelers, Mary and Joseph, Uh, introduces the the ministry of Jesus. But one of the things, if we were to continue to read the Gospel of Luke, that we would discover is that Jesus' adult ministry is also concluded by a scene of confused travelers. N.T. Wright points this out. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus' ministry is bookended by travelers on roads concerning themselves with the person and identity of Jesus. If we turned our Bibles all the way to the very last chapter of the book of Luke, we would find the beloved story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. While making their way to the city Emmaus, these two disciples are sharing their anguish over the three days that have passed since they had lost Jesus to death. During their journey, Jesus, unbeknownst to them, shows up and meets them, explains to them why it was necessary for him to suffer the death that he did. In our account this morning, we have another couple traveling back to Jerusalem who have spent three days anguishing because they too have lost Jesus, only to discover Jesus explaining to them why it was necessary for him to be in his father's house. But why would Luke both begin and conclude his gospel in this way? 
It may be that Luke is writing his gospel to people who have some familiarity with Jesus, but they often find that he's much more elusive and surprising than they ever considered. You see, finding Jesus always involves a surprise. Jesus doesn't do or say what Mary and Joseph or the other disciples thought that he should. He doesn't do and say the things that they expected of him. That he, didn't, he doesn't do the things that they anticipated him to do. And this is as true for us as it is today. Whenever we think that we've exhausted our understanding of Jesus or the Christian faith, he up and does something unexpected, right, and surprising. We often find that Jesus is up to something we never considered, hanging out in places we never thought to look. And if we relax in our following and understanding of Jesus, we'll quickly discover that he has gone up ahead of us or perhaps stayed behind without us. And this morning, I want us to see two things that surprise us about the identity and person of Jesus in the text. Not the least because this is the only story we have in any of the Gospels about Jesus' childhood which indicates to me that it's placed here on purpose. Whenever we see one of the gospel writers inserting a story that all of the others leave out, it should really like set off alarms and bells in our heads like this is really important to what he's trying to communicate to us. And, and perhaps by focusing in on these surprising things we learn about Jesus in this story, aspects of his person that we may have familiarized ourselves with, but if we focus a little bit, we might discover that we're either walking ahead of him or he stayed behind without us. But maybe by understanding this passage, we could find ourselves located in the very presence of Jesus even today. The first aspect of Jesus's personhood that to me seems incredibly surprising here is that we find Jesus as a child that grew. In my initial reading of this passage, I had big circles over the first verse and the last verse. How is it, right, that this passage records that Jesus grew physically, intellectually, and spiritually? How is it that Jesus, being fully God, can grow in knowledge and in grace and in favor with God? In a way, this text allows us to understand what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, where he notes that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. One of the things that we discover in this passage that Jesus empties himself of is his divine omniscience, or his all-knowingness, right? He knows all things. And in our passage this morning, Jesus, he isn't playing around or toying with the religious leaders that we find here in Luke chapter 2. His questioning and conversing with them is increasing his wisdom and his knowledge of God. This, this is mind-blowing to me. In some, how is he fully God and yet growing and learning? We, we, we discover that, that he's also fully human, right, in this passage but his growth as a child, I think, has two major implications for us today. The first is it highlights the need we all have for growth in wisdom and knowledge about God. If Jesus needed to grow in wisdom and in knowledge about God, we, it's safe to assume that, that, that we should do that also, right? 
From this passage, we can see that Jesus really does four things in order to increase in knowledge. Is he seeks out teachers, he listens to them, he asks them questions, and he answers them. I'm reminded of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 1 when he says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Increase knowledge of God's will and the blessing of God exists in relationship with one another. It's hard for us, for hard for me to overstate the importance of learning and growing in the Christian life. Paul's plea for, for Christ's followers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds is the means by which they become able to discern the will of God. But we cannot go at this alone. We, like Jesus, we need teachers. Um, when I graduated from seminary and moved up here, actually, like two and a half years ago, that all happened like in the same shot. People gave me all sorts of cards and gifts, which I was really appreciative of because I was a poor uh, student loan, chain, ball chain, down, right, for a uh, guy graduating from seminary and moving to a really affordable place to live in Santa Barbara. <laughs> but none of the gifts that were given to me were more significant in the long run than the one I received by my mentor. He gave me his old, used, and read Bible. At first, I thought, just what every seminarian needs, another Bible, right? It's exactly what I don't have. Wait, I have them in many languages and versions. After using it, though, I found that throughout the pages of this Bible was just comments that he had noted. There were references connecting this passage and this passage, which wasn't in the notes that were printed in the pages, There were things that he thoughtfully uh, considered as a a parent about his children or things that he wrote about his wife and and his work. And as I began to use that Bible for my own devotional reading, his insights began to unlock truths about the scripture that I would not have been able to unlock on my own. When I study from that Bible, I still have it. It's an old NIV version, unfortunately, in some ways, but... It's as though he's kind of just sitting right there with his arm next to me, just saying, like, really, you need to focus in on these words here. You see, it's significant for us to find teachers who can help us understand and grow in wisdom and knowledge of God. I encourage you to find somebody, if you haven't already, a teacher, a friend, a mentor that can help you increase in your knowledge and understanding of God because we, like Jesus, need to be learning about the ways of God. Though we should increase in knowledge and wisdom of God, I really want to note, and I think it's important for us to note that it is not a prerequisite or requirement for sincere faith is we should recognize that Jesus' limited wisdom and knowledge don't make him incapable of a sincere commitment to faith. Jesus was 12 when we find him thirsting for wisdom and knowledge of God in the temple. I think it's that second point there, Jeremy. It may not. There you go. No intellectual requirements for sincere faith. That's nice. Right? Is that Jesus' youthfulness in this text 
isn't a demonstration of the naivete or the gullibility of children, but of their capacity for sincere faith. This has serious, serious ramifications on who we consider are able to make commitments to faith. My grandfather with Alzheimer's is able to have sincere faith. Our special needs community are able to make sincere commitments to faith. As the list goes on and on and on, right, is what we discover is that you don't need to have a certain kind of knowledge or a special kind of access to God in order to have a sincere commitment of faith to him. And our church is a beautiful community that underscores this truth. You can be as smart as a student studying physics at Yale or a small child in preschool with no formal education and have a sincere commitment to faith. You may have grown up in the church and know all the stories, all the felt boards, all the songs of yesteryears, sung Father Abraham way too many times, or you may have walked into the church for the first time today, and you can have a sincere commitment of faith to God. There is no intellectual prerequisite for faith, but sincere faith moves us to increasing our wisdom and knowledge of God. The second aspect of Jesus' person uh, that I see here that really, I think, should surprise us is his identity as a son. The main point of this passage may lie in the contrast between your father and my father. Upon discovering her, quote, lost son, Mary exclaims in verse 48, Your father and I have been searching for you everywhere. Jesus responds in the following verse by asking, Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' response to his mother raises a number of interesting questions, at least to me. Did Mary and or Joseph reveal to him the nature of, his, of her pregnancy and the peculiar circumstances that led to his birth? If so, how do you explain that to your son? Like, listen, Jesus, there was an angel, right? Like, you know, like, how do you have that conversation with him? But if not, where does this awareness of his true father come from? And though we can't quickly gain answers to such questions, there is no doubt that Jesus' response to his mother is significant here. Luke highlights this fact by making them the first words that Jesus utters in his gospel. These are the first words that Jesus speaks. Not only do they fulfill the prophecy that the angel spoke to Mary in chapter 1, where she declared that you will have a son and he will be called the son of the Most High, the son of God. These words also act as a pronouncement to the world that Jesus understands the unique relationship that he has with God. By delineating who his true father is, Jesus makes known where his primary loyalties and commitments are to his heavenly father rather than his earthly father. John Piper writes, it seems to me The main teaching of the passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. While Jesus' unique sonship and his unique mission are his alone, he will later teach that 
a requirement to follow him is that we must make or disciples must make a commitment that takes precedence over every other relationship that one has in their lives, including family ties. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus makes strong words or strong claims regarding families. Speaking to a crowd in chapter 8, he says uh, that those who are his true family are those who hear and practice the word of God. Later in Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate Father and mother, wife, sorry, Paige, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This morning's text, along with these other teachings about family, have two implications, I think, for us today. Oh, that's good. That's very good timing, Jeremy. The first is that the disciples, true disciples of Jesus, must make their commitment to God primary over all other relationships. Before I get ahead of myself, let me just uh, make a quick note that this does not mean that followers of Jesus are supposed to abandon or leave their earthly families' relationships or that family system or look down on them because they don't have the same faith that they, they have, they maintain in their own lives. You see, those relationships remain significant and need to be honored still. Uh, we, we don't actually hate our family members, right? There's a lot more complexity and layers of understanding that passage. But rather, we see here that where the relational commitments between family and, uh, or earthly family and heavenly family conflict, Christians must honor their commitment to God the Father every time. Um, the way that this can express itself or too numerous to begin to uh, count here. Some obviously more serious than others, but this past week, we, there was a student here in our church, a simple illustration, who has a sincere commitment of faith. Um, and they, they seek to follow Jesus with all of their hearts and all of their minds, with all of their strength. But they are a part of a family, earthly family, that does not share those same convictions. During the Christmas holiday, the demands for our time and our energy increase substantially, both from earthly families and from heavenly families as well. Thanks for coming to the Christmas Eve service. And last week, the student's earthly family, his family was gathering during Christmas Eve with extended family here in town. But their church family was also holding a significant gathering as well. And being unable to be at two places at once, there was a decision to be made, right? They chose to be here at our Christmas Eve service and then head over to the family gathering. And while in some ways it's a simple and maybe a little silly illustration, it gets to the point. It's that if we have sincere faith, our commitments will be challenged between earthly relationships and our relationship with God. Uh, it might be a career that you want to take that your parents don't think that you should have taken. It, it might be a, a relationship that you need to let go so that you can honor these other relationships that God has called you to honor. It, it might be a certain set of priorities in your life, the, the way that you think of things as being more important than other things. But these commitments between the earth, our earthly father and our heavenly father will collide. And we have to, if we're going to be sincere disciples of Jesus, uh, make our relationship and commitment to God primary. 
But beyond the implication of family commitments that are required of individuals, I think there also remains here an implication for faith communities as well. The reality is that there are many people, like the student that I just mentioned, who don't have families who share in their faith. I believe it is the responsibility of those who are part of a faith community to be stand-in spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and brothers and sisters to them. I was talking to a friend not too long ago who said he felt kind of guilty about the fact that he felt closer to the people in his church than he did with his own family. And I reassured him that his church family actually was family. Uh, And we are to treat one another as such. We don't just treat each other as if we were, pretend like there's this illusion, like we're all family here, like this is this nice thing that we say. But the spiritual reality is that we are family when we are bonded together in a shared faith. In my last church, uh, one of my youth volunteers was an older gentleman, John Hardison, which we called Doc. Um, He would often refer to me as his grandson, uh, which kind of crept me out at first because I was like, we're not related here at all. But he just felt this kinship and bond with me. Um, And as we grew in our friendship together, I began to refer to him more and more often as my grandpa. Um, which he got a big kick out of. And while I mainly did this just to kind of entertain him, um, it was also this verbal declaration of a spiritual reality. We were both in the family of God. He was my spiritual grandfather, and I was his spiritual grandson. Jesus' identity as a family member gives us clarity what it means to be a member of God's family while also maintaining our relationships to our earthly families. At the close of this morning's text, we see Jesus returning home with Mary and Joseph. Um, Fascinating to me that we don't get any other bits of information of his life for another 18 years in Luke's gospel. Reminds us that Things are always best done in God's timing and not to be rushed or uh, speeded up for any reason. But perhaps this morning um, is the time for you to make a decision of faith or to make next steps in your faith by seeking out a teacher or a mentor. Maybe you uh, need to finally make your relationship with God the primary commitment in your life. Or maybe there's somewhere, someone in our, in our church family that you've seen coming in and out of this place and your heart just has been calling you to, I should embrace this person as part of my family of faith. I encourage you to respond to the word of God as he calls you and he leads you this day. And I trust that as we faithfully um, obey Jesus' example here that we find in Luke 2, that we will neither find Jesus behind us nor ahead of us, but walking alongside with us. Let us pray. God, we are so grateful that you are a God who has revealed himself as Emmanuel. And it's surprising and jarring as, and maybe even bold, that statement sounds as I say it, I, am, I celebrate that, God, that you are very present with us even today. And I ask, Lord, that, that you would continue to nurture the type of faith that is able to see you in surprising ways and in surprising places, God. 
I pray for our children's ministry, that you would continue to allow fruit, that, that ministry to be fruitful as we aim to nurture faith in young people today. I pray, Lord, that, that we would embrace uh, the family of God with sincere hearts, that we would uh, understand and recognize and love one, one another as you uh, kind of uh, demonstrate and provide example for us this day. Jesus, be present with us, we, we ask. That is our heart's desire. And it's in your name that we pray.